Good day, fellow explorers. This is what we have for you on today's Impact Everywhere podcast. We flagged over 60 illegal forestry concessions, which launched a presidential investigation, legal cases against high-ranking officials, exposed the president and her family's participation in it, exposed tens of millions of corrupt CSR funds from big oil companies that were participating in this, that were paying off government and paying off systems and not leading to change and development in the ways that were promised to people on the ground. That is 1% of what we uncovered. And what we could say in the film was based on legalities, triangulating evidence, and a whole bunch of other factors. Whereas we've seen almost everything that we uncovered play out in the years to come about corruption, accountability, and the role of the first family. Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Our guest today is Anjali Nair, and she is a scientist, journalist, award-winning filmmaker turned tech entrepreneur who created TIMBY, which is an acronym for This Is My Backyard, T-I-M-B-Y, which is a suite of encrypted tools that is used by communities and NGO workers living on the front lines documenting and sharing human rights violations in order to keep big companies and governments accountable. Anjali was introduced to me by a friend called Guillaume Baudouin, who is an ocean filmmaker. I was talking to him about how I wish I could find a way to transition from artist to tech entrepreneur so that I could actually start shifting my impact from something that was very qualitative into something that was more quantitative. He said that Anjali was the person that I absolutely needed to talk to. And of course, she does not disappoint. Anjali has created many fantastic films around the human potential for transformation. Gunrunners, as an example, is a film about two Kenyan warriors who trade in their AK-47s in exchange for, wait for it, a pair of running shoes so that they can compete to run for a marathon in the United States. And Silas, a documentary highlighting citizen reporters that are using smartphones to expose the land grabs and corruption. But what I think is even more impressive is that in addition to these amazing films, she's also the founder of Timby which is used by the United Nations, governments around the world, Oxfam, WWF, and many, many more. Today, Anjali and I speak about the responsibility of storytellers around the world, how we need to rethink aid in the context of empowering communities, and what we as individuals can do in order to fight against corruption and large government powers. I think you're gonna enjoy this week's episode. This is Anjali, and here she is talking about how she began her life as a scientist. So I've had a fairly circuitous career. I started out studying biology and geology, and then climate change, and then I moved into journalism, film, and now technology. On the surface, it sounds very random, but at the core, I was struggling with this concept of changing our collective relationship with the world around us, a more equitable and sustainable world for all. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, for some context, the time of the Earth Summit in Rio, when we started seeing the profound influence of human-caused climate change, extreme weather events, coral bleaching. In my mind, the data was unquestionable. But by the early 2000s, when I was going to university, there was already a wave of pushback and disinformation about climate change. Books like The Skeptical Environmentalist were making headlines. To take you back, the climate change documentary An Inconvenient Truth wouldn't be made for another five years or so. And from a political context in Canada, we would soon elect Stephen Harper as prime minister, 
and he'd get the country out of its global environmental commitments, was muzzling government scientists. There were really two things happening at the same time. There was intentional disinformation, mainly funded by big oil. And if you want to learn more about that, the history of climate change and disinformation, check out the New York Times Magazine article, Losing Earth. There's also a book on the subject. But equally destructive, I felt like well-intentioned journalists were making mistakes when writing or talking about climate change, which was leading to doubt and confusion. As a science grad student kind of choosing my path for the future, I wondered how I could make more impact. Did the world need more facts, more quantification of climate change impacts? Or could I help more by being a communicator? I dropped out of a PhD at Oxford to go to journalism school. I think we've all realized over the years that you want people that know about health to write about health and who know about climate change science or science in general to write about climate change science. And that was my first real engagement with storytelling as a career on a very practical level. That was the journey from scientist to journalist. And it's really been through this identifying of obstacles and bottlenecks and trying to find ways to push the needle. I think that anyone working on these chronic issues can relate that it's a struggle. It often feels impossible, but you have to keep trying and you have to keep innovating if you want to make a difference. It's so interesting to me that decades ago, you already felt like there was enough data to make an informed decision and that the thing that was truly missing from the narrative was storytelling. Was there something that you were seeing in journalism when you first started out that you felt needed to be changed that was missing from the narrative? I think the next big realization I had was that we all want to change the world. But reading the news, which is predominantly negative, that feels impossible. We feel like we don't have agency. We don't have enough power to change the status quo. What can my recycling do or getting an electric car do to change climate change? How can I stop human trafficking halfway around the world? To start the path to be part of the solution and part of the action, we as a general public have to feel like our actions have meaning and consequence. So instead of just reporting the often negative facts on climate change, I saw my work shifting to covering stories and profiling people that are changing the world around them. I moved from journalism into long-form magazine writing and feature-length documentaries that gave me the storytelling space and time to emotionally engage rather than just factually engage my audience. We'll talk about my path into technology a bit later, but the system I created was really about giving people the tools to convert this inspiration into action in their own backyards. It seems like there was a moment in your life where you shifted from the desire to just inform people and the desire to inspire people. What was that shift of perspective like for you? I don't think there was a specific moment. It was a gradual shift of having to believe myself in something better. And that might have been because of where I was living and the politics that I was seeing around me or all the negativity that I was seeing around me. So it might have been the shift within myself to be like, this is possible. So in telling that story of my journey to having to believe, I probably was inspiring other people to do the same. All of my films have been about this idea of changing your world. I've made films about warriors turned marathon runners. I've environmental activists, people that are biking across Canada. I've written journalism articles about everything that you can possibly imagine. All the surface stuff changes, all of the template and the background and the considerations. But I literally have been making the same film my whole life. They're always coming of age or coming of consciousness films about a person's ability to change themselves and the world around them. And that's probably just something that I've been struggling with. 
my whole life. I feel it's not just you, it's every storyteller. And <laughs> you all tell the story of the hero's journey in some capacity. There is something to be said about the format that does work and you can see that people resonate with it. I want to ask you one question before talking about Silas, which is one of your films. It's what is the responsibility of a storyteller when putting one of these documentaries together? Is it about making sure that the story you tell is serving the person whose story you're telling? Or is it about the greater cause? It's a really good question. I think it's a little bit of both. Any story has to make sure that it's from the voice and perspective of the person that you're profiling or the people that you're profiling and and telling the story about, that it is truly their story, not your story, but that if it is going to resonate with a more broad audience, that there are themes and perspectives that resonate and serve that greater goal. You're able to use those little specific moments to paint out a larger perspective. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making the film. But if you ever start to think about what you're trying to achieve with a film rather than what the story is, then you start decoupling from the reality. And then it stops being that authentic version of itself. When I started that film, it was really from the perspective of wanting to tell the story of environmental issues or these broad ideas of land grabs that we read about in the news and don't really understand how they happen. I remember being a foreign correspondent for Reuters in the region and writing about these land grabs. And I'd hear about a million people in northern Mozambique losing their land and their livelihoods. And you're sitting there thinking like, how does that happen? Like, how do a million people get put out of their land? What is the mechanism for that? Why, as a foreign correspondent based here, talking about these issues, do I not know about this before? I'm the person that's supposed to know about this. I'm the person that's supposed to be breaking this news so that it can't happen and that things can change. And really thinking about that broader idea was my overall purpose, but without a voice, without a kind of story, I could never tell that broader issue or that story. And so finding and interacting with Silas, I knew that he was somebody that could bring this type of story to life. And in that decision of profiling him, I knew that it had to be his perspectives on the issue, that they matched what I wanted to overall say, but this story wouldn't be the same without his lens. As a local researcher, activist, incredibly intelligent person trying to navigate this, that it was less about my perspectives on all of this and more about his vision from the ground up on how this all worked. And when I was starting to put the story together, we're in a very different place now in terms of our understanding of who these stories should be told through. But when I started this story, maybe in 2011, a lot of broadcasters were like, you're a scientist. You've been a a filmmaker talking about these issues. Why don't we make the story about your excursion to Liberia to unearth these issues or something? And from my perspective and my background, having done that and understanding the importance of who gets to tell what stories It's not just me as the filmmaker, but who is telling the story as the principal character. I shot that down immediately. If you are going to profile or frame something in local context, that you really have to follow that person's story, not create your own. Hearing you speak, it's almost as if you're just serving as a translator, right? You're taking someone's story, but you're translating it to multiple audiences in order to make it digestible for other people. But you're trying as much as possible to stay neutral and as honest as possible and listen to the story that needs to be told. Yeah. In way fewer words. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. Why don't we dive into the Silas story a little bit? And I'm sure all the listeners here are just really curious to hear that question answered. How do a million people lose their land? 
but I think it's a microcosm into what you're currently doing now. And I'd love to dive deeper into what happens on the ground and what that film was about. Yeah. When we read environmental stories in the news or in long form media or anything like that, it's always quite negative. And part of the reason is because we're talking about stories after they've happened. So this dam has been built and it's destroying this area or this water area has been polluted, or these communities are being poisoned to death or getting cancer because of all this industrial waste. It's this after story. And how do a million people lose their land and livelihoods? And and I think the true environmental story and where I'd like to see environmental storytelling continue to move in is the process of how you get there. Because when I would go as a journalist and investigate these issues on the ground, when I heard about these issues, I would realize that local communities, local NGOs, everybody involved had an awareness of what was going to happen months to years in advance. The problem was that there was this disconnection at the very local level. If you're a rural Liberian farmer and you're seeing landscaping being done around you for a palm oil plantation that has no right to be there, how do you get that out? You don't have roads or it takes three days or maybe even a week if the rains are in effect. And to get to the main capital, you don't have the money to do that. You don't have phone network, internet network in most of the country. And you don't know people. So in terms of disconnection, you don't have the contacts. You might have them at the local level, but certainly not at the kind of national level to raise awareness about these issues of the policymakers or the journalists or anything else. So you're disconnected in terms of your ability to influence what happens in your land. That can be a very powerless position. It's also from the other side, if you are a global policymaker or anybody that wants to change things on the ground, whether it's environmental issues, corruption issues, human rights abuses, how do you get to speak to that last mile? How do you have the ability to share all these incredible global databases that we have in the world at that local level so that people can do informed reporting and click into the global information system that we have? When we were making the Silas film, I realized very clearly that all of these issues are happening on the ground all the time. But as a journalist or as a filmmaker, I am not going to be there while it's happening. I can't be everywhere at once. I wasn't able to tell that story. What I could do, though, is empower all of those disconnected people that had a piece of the narrative to be a participant. I worked quite heavily with Silas, who was the voice and grounding point of this film, with his network of how he got information not only during the Liberian War and the resource wars that were happening during Charles Taylor's time, but also currently in the present day under the Nobel laureate and then President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf to understand what was happening on the ground. At that time, it was word of mouth. It was informants. It was taking pictures on a camera and then somehow trying to bring them to the Capitol. And I thought, what about if we equip them with technology that can do the same thing, but create a geo-reference point and a timestamp so that when something is being taken in, it can be used as a piece of evidence in building a repository of data that they can use to then lobby for a change and improvement. 
On a filmmaker side, it was really about setting up a system that wouldn't just be extractive. Yes, take all this photographic evidence for me, but would help them in their larger vision of what they wanted to change in their world. So we created Timby, This Is My Backyard, as part of the film with that entire group and set up the system for people to participate. So the story of Silas is really the story of all of these people across the country that were reporting on what was happening to their land and working with Silas, the main character in his organization, to contextualize that into what it meant at a both national and global level in terms of corruption and illegalities that were being done by big business working in extractive industries, usually foreign-owned. And not to completely ruin the storyline, but can you walk us through this citizen journalist movement that you empowered? Were there real-world repercussions, and why did it work? In terms of the storyline that you see in the film, we pieced out probably three or four different narratives from hundreds that they were collecting during that time. Because at least in terms of the storyline, it makes more sense to see a beginning, middle and end of something. So we chose the ones that worked. But we flagged over 60 illegal forestry concessions, which launched a presidential investigation, legal cases against high-ranking officials, exposed the president and her family's participation in it, exposed tens of millions of corrupt CSR funds from big oil companies that were participating in this, that were paying off government and paying off systems and not leading to change and development in the ways that were promised to people on the ground. That is 1% of what we uncovered. And what we could say in the film was based on legalities, triangulating evidence, and a whole bunch of other factors. Whereas we've seen almost everything that we uncovered play out in the years to come about corruption, accountability, and the role of the first family. We were able to only put a tiny fraction of it into a pretty big film, but it's just to prove that the importance of empowering people with their own data and enabling them to control, own, host, and manage data was so much more influential than what I as a journalist could do in terms of the storytelling. So massive changes from the film itself and the participation, but continual changes from these communities, from these NGOs, and their continued work to this day, almost 10 years later, pushing and collecting and building cases for impact. I think that's so phenomenal because what you accomplished here, the impact that you accomplished from accelerating the information flow between parties by trying to make your film in and of itself created I think far more impact than a film alone, if it had just been extractive in its nature, where you're like, oh, I just want to tell this person's story because they got a cool story. Why do you think your background and experience led to this approach? We talked about it a bit earlier, but my career has been centrally motivated to push the needle forward for environmental and social justice issues and taking the left turns necessary to be most effective. I haven't really been afraid of starting again and again. I think equally being a documentary filmmaker has made me more patient, as well as a better collaborator and listener, which is imperative for good innovation. One has to look beyond one's own ego to make a successful or impactful product. I remember, actually, when I first brought up the idea of the film and Timby, the technology system that would collect media for our film, to Silas, my collaborator, and he warned me about being extractive. I was coming in and telling a story and then leaving. In effect, it wasn't very different from the paradigm 
that was happening for the country's iron ore or palm oil or its trees. So he pushed me to create something that would empower his NGO and the communities across Liberia to build cases and solve their own problems in the long term. I remember he told me that aid and outside influence doesn't help. And storytelling from the outside only helps as much as it can build a local system or movement for people to solve their own problems. The Timbi suite of tools then were a collaboration with hundreds of users across Liberia and Kenya from the very beginning. We designed and iterated together for nearly five years in Liberia while making the film before we ever really thought about widening our scope and influence. We were patient and hyper-focused, and at the end of the day, Timbi grew with its devoted user base. The Liberian activists using the system started sharing the impacts of their work in conferences, and there was an incredible knock-on effect of that early sharing. Now we're in more than 20 languages in more than 40 countries around the world, working on everything from wildlife crime to human trafficking. I love this whole aspect of empowering people to do what they want to do better and do it easier and do it quicker. And really, you're providing value and your whole focus this whole time was to provide value in a usable package. And there was no ego associated to it because if your ego was there, it would just get in the way anyways. Just to pause on that idea for a second, think how many hundreds of thousands of groups around the world are working on these issues. Think about the community groups, the indigenous organizations, the local, regional, national NGOs, the brands, the investors. How many people are trying to make this world more equitable, more environmentally sustainable, more safe? Now, if you can make even a percentage of those groups more efficient, more effective, more safe, then that's really the lowest hanging fruit for change. Not creating something that's going to change everything, but just giving people the opportunity to do the work that they're already doing better. Why would I need to create something new? Why wouldn't I be a support for everybody that already knows their place and what needs to be done? that's working locally or regionally and just needs that little bit of help to be more effective. That is what we saw as the window of opportunity for us to be effective. And that has nothing to do with ego. It has all to do with being a supporter to processes that are already in place. Right now, we almost consider ourselves like a service industry. So if Transparency International or Oxfam or Friends of the Earth or any other big environmental or human rights organization, they're doing monitoring. We're often the ones that are running their monitoring for them in terms of the technology, the support, the organization building, and so on. And that's really what we love. Can we help people be more effective at a bigger scale? That's so awesome. Hey, for the listeners here, do you think you could go into a couple different use cases of how Timby is being used just so that in case they have a friend or a group that they may think about who might benefit from knowing about Timby, just Paint us a picture of a couple different ways and inspirational stories of how Timby has completely changed the game. So the Sengwer are an indigenous group in Kenya, and they have always been forest dwelling. When colonials from Britain came in to Kenya, weren't in the plans because they didn't live in the cities, so they weren't acknowledged as a people. So they've been living in these forested areas in Kenya since who knows when, have ancestral lands and important places to them. Now, in this whole push for climate and reforestation projects and so on, the Kenyan government have wanted to basically fence out all these forested areas within the country. 
Now that is one paradigm in forest conservation is let's create spaces and then police them. So that's a forest that's there for the future. Another approach that's often used in South America, for example, is understanding the ties that indigenous groups have to forested areas. And the reason why those forested areas still persist is because those indigenous groups are preserving them because that's of cultural importance to them and to their livelihoods. So we have been working with the Sanguer in Kenya to protect them originally because all these climate projects were coming in and were evicting them with the help of the Kenyan government, evicting them, killing or maiming people a lot of really violent interactions. Now, we worked with them because obviously in the goal for a sustainable future, having indigenous organizations and people, part of that plan is important, not just like you preserve the forests and then people are over here. There has to be some acknowledgement and some social justice angle to all of this. So originally when Timby was put into that community, it was requested by them. They used it to document illegal evictions and violent interactions and bribes and other issues that the government and the Forest Service were were doing with respect to the community. The intention there was to have them document stuff and bring it to court. But what happened almost immediately within a month or two was that the perception of oversight became so much more important that all of the corruption ceased almost immediately. This idea of the spotlight principle, like when you're driving down a road and you see your speed, the perception of oversight, it's not that they're docking you based on that speed, but you know what speed that you're being supervised. So that makes you slow down. The perception that you are being observed leads to better behavior. That particular community got eviction, stopped, and all the little bribery stuff almost immediately. But what was interesting about that is that didn't stop them. All of a sudden, like they could get out of that alarm situation where they were just trying to fight for their community and their rights to being really proactive about it within their community. And they created community bylaws and sustainability standards and rules about their engagement with their environment that they could enforce on their own. So they could actually use Timby to document and enforce their own rules about how they would use their own land. So it shifted from like an observatory thing to a progressive, this is our principle and this is how we're going to lead to sustainable development of this land, which then enabled them to engage with their government in a positive way to be a collaborator for the sustainable kind of forestry and protection of that land. So now they're in positive rather than conflict-oriented conversations about the future of forests and land in Kenya. Timbi is really interesting because it can be this bottom-up movement type thing for everything, all human rights or environmental issues that you can possibly think of, but it can also be a maintainer of certain rights and responsibilities of a group or a label like fair trade. Out of curiosity, why do you think that Timby was successful when so many others have failed? Do you have a series of overriding principles that others did not? Now, Timby from its beginning, we're built on like three pillars. And the first is just like UX and UI. So understanding our audience really well and working with them, meeting them where they're at. Security is the next step because most of the individuals that are working in these spaces are usually at risk. So if you're an environmental activist or human activist, or you're a worker in a factory that has terrible conditions, you need protection. You need to be anonymous. You need all the communication to be encrypted. You need panic functionality and emergency functionality to keep safe because your situation as a whole is not very safe. 
So you reporting on the subject is another added thing. Not that people should be asked to report that they weren't, but often people have been reporting insecurely for so long that Timby can help them be a little bit more safe. And the third aspect is like really access to remedy. What are you going to do with all of this information? People will only continue to contribute if it can lead to change. And that is where we started engaging with top-down situations a little bit more. So governments or brands or investment groups that would be able to actually use this information to change their habits in countries. And so the other example is that because of its human rights, Timby was incorporated and started being used in the garment industry quite heavily and in supply chains more broadly. There is so little visibility about what's happening in factories around the world in terms of overtime, in terms of sexual violence, in terms of the rules, in terms of COVID closures and people not being able to work or not being paid for the work that they've done as soon as a factory closes. And that's extremely difficult to go up against for so many reasons. If you're a brand that we've seen really great results so far about putting Timby into these situations and having posters and working with brands and factories and allowing people to have a reporting mechanism, not to the factories, which is what currently it is, but sidestepping that and reporting straight to brands so that they can take top-down action in the factories that they work in. So yes, we've expanded quite rapidly over the last couple of years in factories. Again, word of mouth and one company trying it, it being really effective. And then all the other companies that work in the same factories taking it on as a tool for their work as well. That's so exciting. I love hearing both the top-down and bottom-up approach. And actually, I just interviewed for episode 33, actually, someone who escaped modern-day slavery. And she was working in like a 10 by 10 factory at the age of 10 years old, seven days a week, 14 hours a day. <laughs> it's just like these terrible stories of people. And, and there's they don't have anywhere to go. They don't even know what's possible. And so it's really cool because what you're describing of giving brands the tool to it's a primitive, it's a primitive block of accountability to make sure that everyone can participate in this discussion. It almost feels like you've taken your background as a journalist and you've open sourced it to anyone, whether they have the skills or not to tell stories. Now they can all be part of a bigger narrative and push for change. Once again, for the listeners, in case anyone knows someone who could benefit from this, what is the implementation process of getting Timby in? Customizing, I don't know, a WordPress website is sometimes quite complicated. So what is it like to get Timby into an area into a new cause. Yeah. So that's the thing about technology is that technology is usually not the solution. It's all the things that surround the technology that need to be there to make it work. And what I imagined for Timby in the very beginning is a very narrow, I was thinking about it only within this landscape of not even environmentalism, but specifically land grabs and land use. And what I've learned through time from people coming to me and saying, I really want to use it in this way wanting something to be different and having a really good presence on the ground of a united vision of what that should be. So workers all are aligned that they want better conditions, generally. A community that's on the sidelines and say the Niger Delta of a Chevron plant that is flaring and people are getting sick are all aligned about wanting better situations for their children and for their health and so on. So having some understanding of we are a group of people with an aligned mission, and I want to change that narrative. We have the ability to take pictures about it, but we don't know what to do. How do we create change? How do we create impact? So coming to Timby 
with a clear problem and a desire for change. And then Timby then works with designers and information specialists and security experts and everything to figure out whether we could customize a system that would bring them the impact. We do a flow diagram. Where are the hotspots? Where are the security issues? Where are the channels of influence? Who are the partners that need to be there to pair up with the system? Are you bringing data to police officers because you have trust in those police officers, law enforcement officers to make a difference? Or are you bringing that data to journalists because you have no trust in your local government whatsoever? You need to bring it to the general public. So yeah, the engagement is there. Articulation of a problem, what needs to be collected, who the partners need to be, and then it would be the implementation. But so much of us is is about the problem solving and the, wow, this is a cool, complex problem that we've never thought about before. So let's figure out if we can be helpful. And that's usually our beginning engagement with any group. So let's take this example that you just gave of the Fisher people in Malaysia that now have a problem. How do they pay for something like this? Because when I hear you describe your process and from being in the impact space for long enough, impact is not a simple journey. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's manual. There's only so much you can automate. And sure, you might have a couple brands step in to fund some of the top-down projects, but how does it work for bottom-up projects? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we work as a SaaS-based system, so a subscription-as-a-service model in general. And that means if a brand wants to use Timby, that it pays a subscription per month for that service. Now for environmental groups and so on, there's kind of two methods We've gotten such a kind of a reputation in terms of what we do and the impacts that we've created that a lot of organizations at the international level and the national level will build us into their funding models. They don't pay us, but when they're going for a $1 billion grant from the EU government or a $1 million grant or whatever it is, they're usually saying, okay, in 10 countries, we're using Timby as our system for monitoring for those areas. Usually it starts with one project in one area and then it builds and builds. And with many of these organizations now we're in 10 to 20 countries with them. So that's one other model of subscription as a service. But the third kind of part of that is when we get to that stage with a community group on the ground and they articulate an issue and we believe that we can help them create change. If we're pretty sure that we'd be able to do that, then we'll take them as a pro bono group. So anything that we get as subscription as a service, we'll fold that back in. So even though we're not a nonprofit, everything that we do is folded back in to the growth and support of communities on the ground. People often talk about open source and the benefits of that. In our experience, the best way that we can serve the groups that we know how to serve best is to open our doors to them by creating profit and revenue in other ways and folding it back into the service. So in addition to that, a lot of environmental or social organizations or funders have realized that model for Timby and why that is a more sustainable model overall than just a grant-based system. So we do get a lot of philanthropic money to bump up functionality when it comes up and also take on a bunch of new groups. And that's become really great because now we have multiple projects in one country, we have multiple projects in one region. And within, say, a portfolio, say within the Amazon, if we've got three groups in Peru and two groups in Colombia and five groups in Venezuela and Brazil, all of a sudden you're starting to have control over information in a region that can be more than the sum of its parts. And for us, we don't own data. We don't network data. We don't do anything with data. We are simply a service product. And there's a lot of trust with all of the groups that we're working with, especially because they're activists for the most part. 
But in situations where you have a global organization that is working with all these different groups, they can choose to put their data together and network their data. And all of a sudden you have an intelligence system. So you know what companies are working over borders, what individuals' names you're hearing over borders, what situations are happening over and over again. So you can start to piece out the kind of trends and the areas that need intervention, which you can't get from one simple system. So one tiny project will never have that informational kind of landscape to create change. And that's increasingly the direction that we're going in with groups. That's so beautiful to hear, like how this democratization of data and bringing it to the grassroots and allowing them to collaborate with each other. What do you think are the biggest challenges that you guys are facing right now? What's keeping you from growing and being everywhere that you need to be? Oh, good question. I think the biggest thing that's keeping us from growing is that we spend no money on marketing at all. (laughs) All of what Timby does in the world is based on personal recommendation. One community group telling another community group about their use of this system and what they've achieved. One NGO organization telling another NGO organization. One government telling another government. So I think it's the downfall of most small businesses where you're doing everything and specifically building and supporting your current groups that you're not often looking at the future or planning for what's next. And you only really have the ability to do that as a founder once you have a particular amount of staff and money for the company. And it was from the very beginning, our intention to not take equity and to not fundraise in any ways that would prevent us from serving the people that we set out to serve. Because if you start having equity partners and the intention is to make money rather than to serve the people that you made the product for, that can be very tricky in a social kind of justice space. So there are, I think, really positive things that we would have been able to do in terms of building the business with a lot of financing behind us and take over the market and be in every single company supply chains by now. But would that mean that we wouldn't be able to fold in all of our extra money into pro bono groups that we felt like it was the most important to serve? I don't know if I've fully answered those questions, but it is something that we've thought about a lot and has kept us small and growing organically. So I do hope that we'll be able to get there. And I think that 2021 and 2022, the landscape of the importance of these issues is just growing, not only in the global South, but it also across the Americas and North America, our understanding of places like Flint, places like Southeast LA, where the environmental burden on communities is so high, our desires as consumers to be consuming things that are built or grown justly and sustainably that is just going to increase over time. And so we've stayed true to our systems. We have got great user stories and impact all over the world. And it's just for us to make that final step and have a little bit more awareness in marketplaces so that people know what Timby is. Amazing. So listeners, you now know your mission. Spread the word. (laughs) Share this out with the world and make sure as many people as possible know the story and all the amazing work that is happening. I have one last question for you, Anjali. And that is, if you had a megaphone to the world and you could invite people to do one thing, what do you think that thing would be? I would say that the one thing that I wish everybody knew is that they can. They can change the world. They can do things. They can imagine and dream for a better future. They can change the reality. They can run that marathon, that it's all within them. And that the more people that believe that they can pair that with the person next to you and the person next to you you can change the world. It's simply that simple. 
is that if you believe that you can and you're willing to change your behavior and everybody's willing to change their behavior, then you've covered the whole world. That's probably very idealistic, but it is also true. And I think that the more we realize our own power, the better everything will get. Hey, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm so glad to have a, a chance because your work has been so impactful in so many different ways. And the work that you're doing to elevate stories of all these creators all over the world is really impressive. So thank you for the work that you do. Alrighty, folks, that was the amazing Anjali Nair. If you want to find her online, it's spelled A-N-J-A-L-I-N-A-Y-A-R. And of course, you can find her on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, so on and so forth. So if you just want to learn more about Timby, you can head over to timby.org, which stands for This Is My Backyard. I don't know about you folks, but I have been feeling so inspired ever since hearing this episode, and I've been desperately scratching my head and sending her profile to as many people as possible, because I think the work that she's doing needs to get out in the world. Anyways, as always, there is show notes, audiograms, and graphics for you guys to spread the word at impacteverywhere.org. And if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, feel free to DM me on Instagram at impacteverywherepodcast. And if you want to catch these episodes live on Clubhouse, I'm going to start putting them there in order to get real live Q&A. And so you can follow me there at Von Wong. And with that being said, folks, I hope you have a wonderful week. So stay positive, stay inspired, because impact is everywhere. <laughs>